Thanks, Mark. Yeah, keep praying for Chris. Um, open your Bibles to Judges 9. I'll tell you a little bit about Chris uh, real quick. There's books, or I'm sorry, Bibles in the back if you don't have them. You're definitely going to need one. We're going through 57 verses today. Start a little late because, well, we got 57 verses, so sorry. But real quick, talk with Chris last night. Uh, I know we were slow to update because I didn't want to bother him because things got really kind of crazy uh, at one point. Um, but basically, Reagan, I believe it was Reagan, one of their daughters, went into the Apple Cup um, bathroom with Tara to go to the bathroom, and then she came out alone and said, Mommy, wet herself. She needs help. And was like, uh-oh. And the, her water had broken in there, and so he called either 911 or the hospital because they were in Chelan. They called the hospital in Wenatchee. And uh, he said, can't we just drive home to Everett? And uh, the doctor's like, well, you could do that. Um, your wife will probably go in labor in about an hour, and because she's had four C-sections, she'll probably break or bust her scars open, and she will die in the car, and your daughter will too, but it's up to you. And so Chris is telling me this as he's driving, I said, so what are you going to do? And he said, <laughs> he said, oh, we're, we're on our way to Wenatchee, and so it got really, uh, everything was fine, and then the baby was born, and then next thing you know, they're bringing in crash carts and multiple nurses, and Tara's Blood pressure went down, her breathing was bad. They were keeping her awake, pinching her and trying to make her laugh and, and to keep her awake because they didn't want uh, her vitals to go down any further. And eventually, uh, she kind of came out of the woods and uh, she was fine. And the baby uh, then had difficulty breathing because she's only four pounds, which for the rich family is a huge baby because um, they've had like one pound babies. Um, so they're used to seeing their children plugged into all kinds of stuff. And that was the case with, with her. Uh, but I think she's doing well now, but she's just a little underdeveloped because she's small. So um, keep, keep praying for them because um, it is quite serious, and they will be over in Wenatchee um, for a while, uh, probably a couple days at least. So, all right. On another note, isn't that just a cool picture? I, it's just awesome. Like, it's just gross and neat, and uh, yeah, I'm responsible for those because I think it's just nasty, and I love it. Um, this is the story of Abimelech, and we are halfway through Judges. Um, and it is Judges chapter 9, and then we're going to stop, pause, we're going to do the book of Ruth this next month, and that is actually probably where the book of Ruth takes place, historically. Um, But this is the middle of Judges, it's a story really without a judge at all, Um, and chapter 9 kind of lays out what ends up being the end of Gideon's story and what his legacy really amounts to. Um, after he's gone. And the chapter is long. We're going to go through the whole thing. It's a picture, really, of the whole book. Uh, it's a beautiful picture, a beautifully dark picture, of the unfaithfulness of men. This is what the whole book of Judges is about. The fact that men need a leader, uh, they need a king, uh, because they do what's right in their own eyes, and even the best of God's men rise up, and they're really bad, and they're continually unfaithful. The people are unfaithful, and God is continually faithful um, as He loves them and yet uh, punishes them as well. And so, as flawed as all these judges are, as all these deliverers are, we see throughout the book of Judges, and even today, God uses these broken men to save broken men in a very broken world. And when you just look at Gideon, uh, it's really hard to tell, like if you had to evaluate whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. Um, whether he is faithful or unfaithful, he starts seemingly so well. And we'll see that today, through his son, he ends really poorly. Um, And even in his own story, he ended poorly. When he started, if you remember, God calls him out of a wine press. He's a weak, um, 
you know, young, uh, little kind of man, but he obeys God's call. Um, he talks with God constantly. He talks with God more than any judge in uh, the book of Judges. He's always having conversation. Uh, he faithfully tears down Baal's altars and restores relationship with his people and God. Uh, then he fights the Midianites uh, and does this awesome job uh, of doing that with his 300 men. And honestly, his success makes him pretty prideful. And you know that because he starts to abuse his own people in the process. As much as you like to say, as I just saw last week, he's like, I'm going to teach these men a lesson. Those are his own people uh, that he's doing that to. And so you see quickly how bad leadership or good leadership can, can become bad. And so the people come to him as they're really excited for all these things he's doing. He saved them from Midian to say, hey, we want to make you king. And he's like, no, 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 no. I don't want to be king. But I will make this ephod. And he makes this golden ephod, this, this thing that is used for, for worship, basically the priest wears. He makes himself one. And he ends up directing really all worship through himself centering around his family in his hometown, when in fact the tabernacle where the Spirit of God dwells is in an entirely different city in Shiloh with the actual ephod and the high priest. And so he centers it all himself. I'm not going to be king, but I'm going to act like a king in many different ways. And so he becomes and is either made into or makes himself into, it's sometimes hard to tell these days, into the first celebrity pastor. And the ephod ends up being a snare to his family. Now, the thing about, we're going to read the story, we're going to go through it in big chunks, and you're going to be going, yeah, this is all about leaders. Well, I believe, and I'm convinced, that the story speaks to all of us, because I think, believe with the firmest conviction that we all have a desire to be great. We all have a desire to be great, to have greatness. And I know you're thinking a lot of things what that can mean, but... I think the image of God in us, that desire is not always bad. I think that desire to be great, the desire to do something wonderful, achieve, uh, is part of the image of God coming in us. But unfortunately, that's perverted by sin. And when it's good, when it's, I guess, not as perverted, because it's never totally pure, we see that uh, good leadership or that, that desire for greatness is good when, when men remember who God is, when they celebrate what He's done, when they obey what He says, and they're leading others to delight in God's rule. That's when we say, hey, that's a good level of greatness. But kind of that kind of ambition becomes bad when men forget who God is, when they forget what He's done, when, like the people you'll see here, decide that what they think or feel is right, um, is, in fact, right. And like our first parents, what they decide to do is instead of following God's Word, they basically say, well, I want to be like God, and it would be kind of great to be worshipped and to rule my own kingdom. It's the same sin that's happened in Genesis chapter 3 that continues to happen. And so we see that played out in Judges here, and the book of Judges shows us basically that all men are going to fall short, that even God's best are bad, and ultimately points us to the one leader, Jesus Christ, who is not. The one leader whose greatness we can celebrate and should. But I actually believe that, as we see here, most men, including us, us, try to rob God of His glory, to sit on His throne, and sometimes we don't ever see the consequences of what that brings. Unfortunately, Gideon, in this case, because of all he did, his 
um, pursuit of his own greatness, which honestly made him out to be a bad man, a bad dad, a bad leader, is played out in the next generation when he's gone. So, we begin with his death. I'm going to back into chapter 8 just a little bit. It says, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. People of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam. That is Gideon. There's a reason why they say Jeroboam and not Gideon. In return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So immediately following the death of Gideon, the cycle begins. The people go after false gods again. And you begin to see that the faith of these people was simply dependent upon this leader. When the leader is removed, and you see that all the time, in churches and organizations, on teams, like when the leader is removed, whether he has a moral failure or whether he's just fired or whatever, oftentimes everything goes bad. Because it was dependent upon that guy. In this case, their faith was dependent upon Gideon. They didn't really have faith. In fact, Gideon was their king, not Jesus. They made him to be awesome, and they didn't care so much about God. And so as soon as Gideon's gone, they run back to Baal 2.0. And I say Baal 2.0 because they go into a new version of Baal. It's not full-on Baal worship. It's called Bear Berith, which means Lord of the Covenant. Usually it was just Lord. Lord of the Covenant is, what they've done is kind of a hybrid of Judaism and, who's called Christianity. I'm sorry, Judaism and Baalism. And we see that today, where something sounds biblical, they use biblical language, they kind of use biblical concept, and yet it is totally false and cultic, i.e. Mormonism. Okay, Great example of what they're doing. It sounds like it's got a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in there. Yeah, but you shine it against Scripture and you go, this is really messed up. But it makes them feel like, well, we're kind of Christian, and that's what they're doing right here. So the more they begin to love Baal Berith, the more they begin to forget Yahweh. And the more they begin to forget Yahweh, the more they forget Gideon and all that he did, and they actually start to hate his family. And there's no one that hates Gideon more than his illegitimate son named Abimelech. Hates his guts. And we'll see that right here. Verse 1, it says, Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 sons of Jerubbaal rule over you or that one rule over you? And remember, I am your bone and your flesh. Right? He's making an argument for himself. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts, because they're evil and dark, inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, well, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baalbereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house, dad's house at Ophrah, and he killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubel, was left, for he hid himself, maybe in a wine press, 
And all the leaders of Shechem came together at all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. So Gideon had lots of kids. He had a whole harem, much like a king. And he had 70, sounds like 71 children, and they all lived in the hometown of Ophrah. But he also kept a concubine in the city of Shechem, just in case he wanted to get out on a vacation. She, this concubine, who was most likely Canaanite, she gave birth to a son of whom was named Abimelech, and his name means my father is king. And he was raised in Shechem, apart from his other brothers, by his mother, and dad probably visited on the weekends. So, my father is king, has a lot of daddy wounds. Okay? Abimelech, and you have to read into it, but seeing his reaction when Gideon dies, it makes a lot of sense. He feels marginalized. He feels abandoned. He feels rejected. He feels all those things that someone might feel when he has been ignored by dad. And all these other boys have gotten all this credit and joy of living in Gideon's home. And he wants more. He believes he deserves more. And so he's going to take more. So after the death of his deadbeat dad, Abimelech appeals to his relatives, his family, who if they were godly, if they were faithful, they would say, this is a bad decision, Abimelech. It's amazing how many families encourage the sins of their children. As opposed to saying, this is not a good idea. They listen to him. More than that, they encourage him. And they take his message to the leaders of Shechem. Literally translated, the Baals. Now, the term that's used for the Baals or the leaders is is not an uncommon term. It's used throughout Scripture. But it's not used really in Judges Barely at all, except in this chapter it's used 13 times. So he has a city led by a group of Baals with the temple in the middle that's Baal worship. So this is pretty much a Canaanite city. And you see Abimelech is pretty much Canaanite in opposition to God. So he, if anybody, is the oppressor. And the oppressor this time is coming from within, which usually the worst ones do. So he goes to these leaders... And like a very well-versed politician makes a real nice argument. And he simply says to them, through his parents and family, well, which is better for you guys? Think about this. Would you rather be ruled by a family of 70, quote, bail fighters, that's sons of Jeroboam, 70 bail fighters who live in an entirely different city, or... Would you like to be ruled by one Baal-worshipping homeboy like me? Now, you think about that, they're going, hmm. Well, if he's our guy, and he becomes king, we're pretty important people too. right? He's appealing to their own sense of greatness. The same thing that's driving him. I want to be great, I want to be more. And I know you guys do too. So why don't you support me doing this? And I've always wondered how false teachers and stuff like succeed. Like, why do these beep guys 
create these huge organizations. Yeah, that was a swear word that I didn't say, right? These organizations, these churches, these, these things, you go, how do you ever find success when you are pouring out such lies? And well, here's the reason. Some of them make themselves, but usually that never happens until you have a bunch of people that are funding them and following them because they're being told the things they want to hear, which actually may not be what Scripture says, but it feels good to hear it. And so they follow them. And that's what these guys do. You're going to be great. I want to be great. Let's be great. Here's some money. And they support him, and they finance him, this campaign, and they take from their cultic temple, where they get the money, 70 pieces of silver, 70 shekels, valuing each man that they're going to kill at about five to seven bucks. You know red flag when people's lives become pretty valueless, valueless, lack value, valueless can't be a word, that should be wrong, right? When they're meaningless, when they're commodities to be traded, red flag. He hires a bunch of worthless guys, mercenaries with the money, and he goes and he slaughters. And we kind of read past that, I mean, can you imagine 70 guys, it's not like they're chasing around, shooting them with arrows or whatever. They gather them together. They bring them to one stone and he slaughters them sacrificially. Probably slits each and every one of their throats one by one. Just brutal. And the tragic irony of it all is that his father was the one who had built an altar to the Lord and established relationship with God again through sacrifices of bulls. And now his son, years later, 50 plus, 43 years later, establishes worship to Baal with the sacrifices of humans, his own brothers. Just dark. And you begin to look and go, you want to talk about what the faithlessness of men looks like? There you go. And all the while, it should be disturbing that God has said nothing. I mean, I'm going, where's God? He's there. So, that's about half of Gideon's legacy, the dark side. And unlike Gideon, though, Abimelech accepts the honor of being really Israel's first king. And I've always wondered, like, what's the sure sign of someone being a bad leader, a a false teacher, a wolf, if you will, someone to go, oh my gosh, that's dangerous. Well, here's one of the signs, dead bodies, okay? Bloody sheep laying around. If there's enough bloody sheep, you're like, you know what, there might be a problem. And usually what you'll see if you look close enough, and not many people are willing to do this, you want to see someone who is, you know, committed and devoted to their own greatness for their own glory? They usually begin by destroying their own family. There's a reason why when elder qualifications, the very first one is husband of one wife. There's a reason why when we assess church planners through Acts 29, we talk about their marriages a lot. It all starts in the family. As goes a man's family, so goes his ministry. And so you see really quickly, Abimelech's family is pretty screwed up. And now, his all brothers are dead. But one survives, Jotham. 
The one survives the massacre, the youngest, the smallest, he hides away. His name actually means the Lord has integrity. In other words, the Lord does what he says he will do. We'll see what that means as he challenges their integrity. He inherited, if there's anything right about Gideon, he inherited this, these, the good seeds, if you will. Like his dad, he is weak and he is small. Like his dad, he stands up when it's unpopular and dangerous. And like his dad, he is used as a tool for God's judgment. That's all he is. Don't make a hero out of Jotham. Don't make a hero out of Gideon. Don't make a hero out of David. Don't make a hero out of Moses. Those are all tools for God's glory. There's one hero, his name is Jesus. So never mistake what you're reading in here is like, well, I want to be like Jotham. No. He's a tool for God's judgment as you and I are a tool for God's glory, whether it be judgment or grace. So as they're celebrating the coronation of the king, he stands up on a mountain. Now there's two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and the center is Shechem. This is a really important thing. He stands up in the same place. If you go back and read in Joshua chapter 8, you'll see this was a really important place because back in Deuteronomy, Moses said, when you go into the land, I want you to read the entire law in this place. And so, after they've conquered the land, they take all of Israel up to Shechem, they divide them over these two mountains, and they read the blessings and the cursings of God's law. They basically say, if you are faithful, if you obey, if you do what God says, and love Him with all your heart, soul, and mind, you will be blessed. If you are unfaithful, if you do whatever you want, what's right in your own eyes, you will experience cursing. God is promising both of those things. At that place, He read that. Then He asked the people... Do you believe this? We believe. Same place where uh, Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. Same place. Place that when they confirmed that we're going to serve God, just like your house is going to, he built a monument at this city. So this is where he's standing up and going, listen guys, you screwed up. Not to mention, he's just watched the same day 70 of his brothers slaughtered. So, although we shouldn't revere him, pretty studly. Pretty godly little man. Here's what it says, and we'll read a big chunk. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim, and he cited aloud, cried aloud, and he said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you and see how you respond. He tells a parable. The trees once went to anoint a king over them, that'd be Israel, And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, well, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, well, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, Well, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade, which is like blackberry bushes and thorns. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. So he gives this parable, and then he continues to speak. Now, therefore, guys in Shechem, if you acted in good faith and integrity, because my name's Lord is the God of integrity, 
When you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerbel and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you, and risked his life, and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day, and have killed his sons, seventy men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If then you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech. Let him also rejoice in you. Party. You're blessed. Here comes the cursing. But, if not, acted with integrity and good faith. Let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to beer where he drank his sorrows away and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. So he, he calls these men out with a parable about trees and thorn bushes. And the parable is not about whether or not we should have leaders. We need leaders. We need leaders in families. We need leaders in churches. We need leaders in business. We need leaders in government. The question is never whether we need leaders. The question will always be the character of the leader. And that's what he's talking about. And I think it's noteworthy, as Abimelech is probably hearing this stuff, Jotham is not challenging him. He's challenging the people who have put him into place. The people who have followed him. See, we have condemnation and judgment and responsibility for the leaders and the people who follow. They have foolishly selected a king. They have chosen to support a worthless, unqualified, big-talking, bramble king. And he says, this guy is going to be a thorn for you. In fact, he says, you guys are going to consume each other with fire. And here's... The truth of it, whether it happens immediately, whether it happens over time, whether it happens over generations, when you put unqualified leadership in place, it will always lead to destruction. Always. And when you have unfaithful decision-making, putting them in position, there will be destruction. And you have an opportunity. I even think these guys have an opportunity here with Jotham saying, all right, let's let God listen to how you respond here. If you are told you are wrong, if you've told you've made a mistake, if you see that, wow, we really screwed up, an unwillingness to repent will always lead to destruction. So that's what we see. And in time, Jotham's curse comes true. And I say it's God's curse really through the mouth of Jotham like a prophet. And you see that the hand of the invisible God is working the entire time. We always want to wonder, where is God? What is He doing? He is there. And in this case, what you see is Him taking the sinful choices of sinful men, and they are doing exactly what He wills to accomplish. In that case, judging Abimelech and judging the people of Shechem. And He turns them on one another. God will judge. God does judge. God is in control, even if it doesn't work out in our timing. Verse 22, here we go. Here's where it begins to turn. Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years. It's a long time. 
And then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, the guys that had supported him. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubel might come, and their blood may be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. I can imagine them thinking this plan up, right? Hmm, we need to kind of like ruin him politically. I know, let's attack our own people. That's what they do. And it was told to Abimelech that this was happening, and Gaul, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives. New guy in town? And the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him, verse 27, and they went into the field and gathered grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went to the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gaul, the son of Ebed, said, Who's Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we would serve him? Is not the son of Jerubel, oh, is he not the son of Jerubel? And not Zebel, his officer? Serve the men of Hammer, the father of Shechem. Why should we serve him? These people were under my hand. I mean, if I was running the show, then I would remove Abimelech and I would say to him, increase your army and come on out. Let's go. It's amazing what alcohol can do to you, right? (laughs) Become a big talker. Luckily, he didn't have email. He'd been firing stuff away, <laughs> blogging about it. But there's someone listening, Abimelech's right-hand man, Zebel, the ruler of the city, and he heard the words of Gaul, the son of Ebed, and his anger was kindled, and he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaul, the son of Ebed, his relatives have come to Shechem, and they're stirring up the city against you. Now go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. In the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush into the city. Come kill the people in the city that I'm running. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So after three years, God sends division, which honestly is the first sign of a bad leadership. Division amongst the leadership. Now there's disagreement there's dispute, but when you have division to the extent where they're creating ambushes to attack their own people to make him look bad, you got a problem. You have a breakdown. You have the beginning of self-destruction. So they, what they want to do is they want to separate themselves from that history. You know what? He did some really bad stuff. So let's make him look bad so people don't like him. And like as these people are getting robbed, like, this place sucks. Who's running this place? Abimelech. Oh, he's terrible. And then Gaul comes down, and he seems like a good guy, and they go, you know, let's take him. Let's, let's use him. He can replace him. And they throw a big party, and Gaul gets drunk, and starts getting a little mouthy. And what does he do? He starts talking big. You know what? We shouldn't be following this guy. He's actually not even really a son of Shechem. He's still the son of Jeroboam. Me, I'm a descendant of Hammer. Who's Hammer? He was the guy who founded the city. So he makes the same argument that Abimelech does, just better. And he says, you know what, if Abimelech was here, I would totally take him down. He'd come out with his army, 
Wouldn't it be a challenge? How do you know when a leader is off his rocker or when he is creating a culture that is poisonous? Well, you start to see more wolves pop up. Wolves breed wolves, and then those wolves attack other wolves, and then those wolves kill other wolves. And because there can only be one alpha dog, when someone's challenging, that person will come and go, time to put that down. That's exactly what happens. It's reported, and then this amazing scene comes with, I think it's kind of funny, the darkness of the end of it's not, but here what happens. Verse 34, so Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up that night, set an ambush against Shechem in four companies, and Gaul, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And the Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaul saw the people, he said to Zebul, look, people are coming down from the mountaintops, right? So he's standing there, comes out with his morning coffee and newspaper to the city gate where they would normally have conversation and talk about the business of the day and those kind of things. And he looks to the hills. What is that? And he starts seeing people come down. And he goes, look, there's people coming down from the mountains. And Zebel, Abimelech's right-hand man, says, no, you mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Get your eyes checked, man. Hey, there's no one. And God looks again. Oh, man, you're, wait a second. Look, there are people coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the Diviner's Oaks. So, like, there's multiple movements coming here. And then, here's what Zebel says to him. Where's your mouth now? Where's your mouth now, big talker? Right, you who said, oh, who's Abimelech, that we should serve him? Aren't, aren't these the people whom you despised? Go out and fight them, big boy. Go get them, big talker. So, Gaul does. And he gets his butt kicked. He went out to the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech, and Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate, and Abimelech lived at Arumah, and Zibel drove out Gaul and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. So, he silences the challenger, but then he, you're going to see he does more than that. Because a bad leader, an ungodly, unfaithful man like this, wants to make sure there's nothing left to challenge him. So he goes a step further, and he begins to destroy the lives of men and women and children. People who once loved him, people who once followed him, people who once supported him, he starts wiping them out. And I believe this is what, quite frankly, an abusive, unfaithful man, whether it be a dad, whether it be a leader, whether it be some business leader, he will do when he's challenged. He won't listen to the challenge. He won't receive rebuke from the challenge. He will crush the challenge and anyone else who whispers about it. He'll destroy reputations if he has to. He will destroy families and divide them. He will do whatever he can to maintain his rule. And this is what you see, and it gets brutal. Verse 42, on the following day, the people went out into the field 
and Abimelech was told. So now the people, so he's put down the challenger, he's put down the little army. The people come out to do the daily work in the fields. And he took his people and divided them, his army, into three companies, and he set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city, and so he rose against them and killed them. Who works in the fields? A lot of women, some men and some children. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city so they can't get back in. While the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city, those who were still in there, captured the city, killed the people who were in it, and razed the city and sowed it with salt. These are people who once loved him, once followed him, once supported him, and were all Israelites. These are his own people. And then when all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, so the guys that really were the forefront of supporting him, they entered the stronghold of the house of Erbeth, their god, who doesn't do very well protecting them. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to the Mount Zaman, and he and all the people who were with him, and Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood, took it up and laid it on his shoulder, and he said to the men who were with him, what you've seen me do, Hurry and do as I've done. So they all take big bundles of sticks. They all cut down their own bundle. Following Abimelech, they put it against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over him so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. So the men and their families burns them in the tower. Now again, we look back and we go, oh my gosh, that's just so terrible. And it is terrible, but you also see very clearly God's judgment. These were the unfaithful people who supported this unfaithful man. And he did tell them, perhaps with even opportunity to repent, that you'd be consumed by fire, and they literally were. But the curse is only halfway full. Abimelech has killed his challenger. He has killed his challenger supporters, and now he goes and kills the supporter supporters. He goes over to the next city. Verse 50 says, Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he encamped against Thebes, and he captured it. And there was a strong tower within the city. You're like, "Uh uh-oh, here comes again. Tower. And all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman, who is never named, threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Look what he does in verse 54. He doesn't die immediately. He called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him still devoted to his own greatness in the moment of death. I want my legacy to be, I was a great man. I can't have them mean saying that I was killed by some woman with a rock. That would be terrible. Quick, stab me. So my story can be told that I died valiantly killing people who were innocent, right? You see the, just like the sheer irrationality and sickness of a man like this where you get devoted to your own greatness. And I know a lot of like, I'm glad I'm not like that. Hold on. Here it comes. 
He is killed. And then you have one verse. And other than God sending the Spirit, one time in 57 verses where God is mentioned. Because the whole time you're like, where is God? What's God doing? Where is He at? Things are happening. Bad people. Good people seem to be killed. What's going on? He said, and God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on... I'm sorry, back up. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, in verse 56, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. Abimelech was punished and judged as he rightfully should have been. And God also made all the evil of men of Shechem return on their heads. They were judged. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. God is ridiculous in his sovereignty. In taking the sinful choices of men and turning them on one another so that his plan is fulfilled and his judgment is exacted and his faithfulness to make sure that all happens is proven. The people forgot God, but God had not forgotten the people or his covenant. So what does this all mean? What the snarf he's supposed to get from this brutal story So let me just break it down really briefly for you so so you understand what this all means and where we go. First and foremost, the sins of men have lasting consequences. Your sin has lasting consequences. I know that's not a real uplifting thing to hear, but our failure to lead in our homes, your failure to lead your family, our failure to lead in our church, Failure to lead in your community, whether it be your neighborhood or where you work, it will have generational impact. Generational impact. You may never see the consequences of some of your unfaithful choices, but your kids might, and your grandkids might. And that should sober us to the reality that we need someone to save us from ourselves. No matter how much... You're not going to be able to work enough to protect yourself against that. You need something outside of yourself to help you. All the good that Gideon might have done was totally overshadowed by all the brokenness that he was as a man. We need someone to save us from ourselves. And secondly, bad men, sinful bad men are judged by a righteous good God. And we want to go, that's right. Let the Abimelechs die. We're all bad men. Every single man is bad. And I know we don't want to connect with Abimelech, but you may as well have. All men, the Bible says, fall short of the glory of God. All men. You're not going to beat that verse, right? No matter how much good you think you've done, no matter how much good you think you're going to do, you are always going to fall short. You are not going to be the one to beat that verse. We are all sinful. We are all broken. And we are all going to fall under the judgment of God if there isn't someone to save us. God is a God of integrity. What's that mean? He makes good on His promises to bless and His promises to curse. If not now, then in eternity. He is who He says in Exodus 34, 6. God doesn't name Himself very often, but He put Moses in the cleft of the rock. He said, I'm going to go and declare my name as I walk by you powerful passage. He says, here's my name, my character, my very essence. The Lord, the Lord, I'm a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Amen. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Hallelujah. 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I want some of that. But. This is part of God's name. Who by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What's that mean? We need someone to save us from God's wrath. Third, we must be careful about choosing leaders among sinful men. Not as if you can find any leaders that are not sinful, but we must be careful. It doesn't take much for good leadership to become very bad leadership. We don't need perfect leaders. You'll not find one. We need faithful ones. And we should support and encourage good biblical leaders and pray for the protection, and we should reject, condemn, and pray against unbiblical leadership that's just going to destroy it. So we do need a leader, but we need a king, a ruler, someone who's more than human, who's not affected by sin. But here's the rub. That's speaking to followers. Now we'll speak to leaders. I'm not a leader. Maybe you are. In your family, maybe as a parent, maybe as a boss, maybe as a pastor, maybe as some kind of leader. Ask yourselves how we are like Abimelech. I'm not like Abimelech. We all want to be great, whether we admit it or not. Greatness is kind of like greed. It's very hard to see. Tim Keller talked about the fact that a lot of people come to him and confess sins because he's kind of rabbi priestly, you know, type of thing, and people just like start pouring their junk. He's like, I've never had someone come and tell me they're too materialistic. I'm just too greedy. It's because greed is hard to quantify. We see a person like, you waste more money than I do. So that guy is way greedy. I'm not like that. The same goes with greatness. I'm not about my... There's always someone else that is way about themselves more than I am, so I must not be struggling with greatness for myself and my own kingdom and those types of things. Well, I'll tell you, I struggle with it greatly. My flesh has struggled with it as a teacher. Oh, I want to be great. As a pastor, I want to be great. I want to make a name for myself. I can feel my flesh often tempting me to do that. And I was very convicted by that fact recently. And I'm hoping that you will ask yourself some two hard questions to see if whether you struggle with that the idea of greatness, wanting to be great. One question is this. To know whether or not you struggle with greatness, how do you look at people who are more powerful and more successful than you? What do you mean? Well, do you feel inferior and covet what they have? Do you feel superior and criticize them? That's my tendency. It's hard for me to celebrate with anyone who I deem more successful than me. What does it look like for a pastor? I play the compare game. I see a church that's growing. And I see them succeeding over measurables you want to put on that. Baptisms, attendance, like, oh, wow. You look at that, and I should celebrate that. And I go, yeah, well, they're doing okay, but I know this and this and this and this about them. When that person gets that promotion at your job before you do, you go, oh, I'm glad they're doing great, but I know they don't deserve it because I know this, this, and this, and this about them. And you criticize rather than celebrate. You struggle 
with wanting to be great. And then those of us, you go, well, it's not only how I look at people who are powerful, but how do you look at people who are powerless and less successful than you? Do you feel superior to them? Do you pity them? Do you love them? Do you respect them? Do you want them to, you know, do well as long as they don't do better than you? Because that would be a threat. You struggle with wanting to be great. Jesus' own disciples struggled with it. They argued in his presence about who would be the greatest in the kingdom amongst them. I'm going to be great. No, I'm going to be on his right hand. Here's what Jesus said, and we'll close with this. He says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them in terms of their leadership, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it should not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. If you want to be great, Jesus says, you are to strive to be a servant, not a ruler. You serve. You make much of others. You consider them more important than yourself. And I believe this is never possible apart from Christ. This is not possible because Christ has to actually bring that desire in me because I know that desire is not there by itself. This is only possible through faith in Christ so He lives through you because the Gospel tells us that although Jesus was Lord of all, He was more powerful, more worthy, more deserving, more everything than anyone, and yet He came and served. He did not take His rightful throne by force. He was lifted up through sacrifice, through giving His life. He assumed a humble position lower than any of us could ever possibly experience. We will never experience the humility that Christ did. It's impossible. And yet He did that out of love so that I might be given a glorious position through faith in Him. So He might make much of me in many ways. Belief in Jesus' death, I believe, therefore cleanses me and it has cleansed me up until even last week. of forgiving me of my own sinful ambition. Of wanting to make much of my name or my kingdom or whatever you want to call it. And belief in Jesus' resurrection frees me from the need to have to pursue my greatness. It's not enough just to be forgiven and go back to neutral. I don't even want to deal with it anymore. Because when I know, when I truly know the position that I have through faith in Christ, It makes any earthly condition, successful, unsuccessful, big, small, powerful, weak, significant or insignificant, totally meaningless. It becomes meaningless. And so through faith, I become, and this is through faith, I believe, I become truly satisfied with what Jesus has given me because He has made me strong. He knows my name. He died for me. He counts me worth it. He approves of me whether I achieve anything great or not. And with that level of satisfaction, I'm, I'm freed to feel or from feeling threatened or jealous or overlooked like Abimelech may have. In fact, more so, I'm moved to celebrate with those greater than me. With those who succeed more than I do. And I'm motivated to lift up those who might have less than me because I, I want them to succeed. 
Because I'm no longer devoted to my own greatness, but to rejoicing in the greatness of God wherever He chooses to be. That's hard, but good. So if God has chosen to make you great, and He has made some of you very influential, very great in your own circles, well-known, respected, the cross should restrain you from boasting in yourself. The cross should remind you how broken you are, and the only greatness that's coming through is Jesus. And for those who aren't so great in the eyes of the world, who may never experience greatness in whatever you think that means, the resurrection tells you that you will experience a level of greatness that is worth a weight of glory, incomparable in eternity. So we don't worry about our own greatness. We just celebrate God's greatness. And we gather here, quite frankly, every Sunday to do that. We're not here to celebrate the greatness of music, of pastors, even of one another, but of God. We're here to sing songs about Jesus' greatness, not about us, how awesome we are, but about how awesome He is. We come and we give our tithes and offerings. Why? Because He gave everything for us, and so He's great. And so we will greatly give back to Him. And then we partake in communion. We actually partake in His greatness, the proof that He has made us great. And though we might not experience it now, we will experience it. I worry about my greatness, but I'm also not foolish enough to believe that it won't come creeping back. And so I take communion every week and continue to repent and confess over and over again until I die and I had to experience the greatness face-to-face with Jesus.